I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us to us, and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, God, and we thank you that it sanctifies us. And we ask that you would do your work in us through your spirit of sanctifying us, of conforming us to the image of Christ, of renewing our minds as we meditate on this passage from John. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I want you to imagine that your young daughter or maybe young sibling or young niece, has injured herself and she comes to you for comfort. Now the fact that she's come to you is significant. It means that you, she sees you as a source of comfort in her life. Your presence is important to her. But in addition to your presence, you can also help her in some very practical ways in this moment. First, you can show her love. You can pick her up and hold her. And you can sympathize with her pain. You can let her know that you care for her and that you love her in that moment. Second, you can provide for this little two or three-year-old important information. Important information about her future about her immediate future and medium future. You can remind her that it's going to stop hurting in, in just a few minutes and that in no more than a few days, her scraped up hands will be as good as new. Now, anyone who has ever comforted a child knows that in its proper place, each of these things is important. Each provides valuable comfort to the child. The child needs your presence. The child needs your tender, loving care. The child needs your promises that it's going to be okay. Relief is coming on the other side of the pain. 
This isn't far from the sort of comfort that Jesus is offering his disciples. In fact, that he has been given, giving to his disciples in the upper room in John 14. Now, he had announced that he was about to leave them. He's going to leave them and go to the Father. He's going to go to heaven, where the Father is, back to heaven. And this greatly troubled the eleven who were in the room there with him, eating. They were upset. They were afraid. They had questions. They had concerns. They were disappointed, disillusioned. So Jesus comforts them. He reassures them of his love for them. And then he provides plenty of helpful information about their future, both their immediate future, but also their medium and long-term future. He gives them his intimate presence there at the table in the upper room. He demonstrates his love for them by eating with them, by washing their feet, by answering their questions, showing them that tender, loving care and sympathy. He understands what they're going through. He understands their confusion. And then he gives them promises about the relief and the joy on the other side of the pain. The joy and the relief that are coming. And what are these promises? What are these promises that Jesus gives to his disciples, to his followers in this moment? Now at the beginning of the chapter... This has been several weeks now since we looked at that. But at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus promised that he would go. And and that he wasn't just leaving, he wasn't just departing, but he was going to prepare a place for them. A place for his people in heaven with the Father. And that having prepared it, once he had prepared it, he would come back and he would get us. So that we might enjoy it with him eternally. A few weeks ago, we looked at verses 12 to 17, and we saw three promises there. The first promise was that believers will do even greater works than Jesus did. Second promise was that Jesus will do whatever believers ask in his name. And the third promise was that Jesus will give the Holy Spirit to believers. These were future promises to them and present promises to us. See, Jesus does greater works through us, his people, than he did during his earthly ministry. Jesus answers the prayers of his people, and Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to abide with us forever. So those are some of the promises that we've meditated on in the last month or so. And the verses that follow in our passage today, verses 18 to 24, Jesus gives four more promises. And I invite you to turn to John 14 as we, as we dig in and, and look at each line in this passage. All four of these promises relate to the future. In fact, they all relate to the relationship, the future relationship between Jesus and each believer until he returns. The first promise there in first, verses 18 and 19 is that Jesus will live and so will we. Jesus will live and so will believers. Second promise in verse 20 is a consequence of this first one. Jesus 
will give believers a sure knowledge of who he is. Jesus will give believers a sure knowledge of who he is. The third promise in verse 21 is related to the second one. It's sort of an extension of it. Jesus will continue to reveal himself to believers. Jesus will continue to make himself known to believers. Then finally, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus explains how he will continue to reveal himself. The fourth promise there is that Jesus and the Father will make their home with and in believers. Jesus and his Father, the eternal Son and the eternal Father, will make their home with believers. The first of these promises is a resurrection promise. Jesus will live and so will believers. Look again with me at verses 18 and 19. It says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Jesus uses the image of abandoned orphans here because that's what the disciples were feeling like already and would continue to feel like in the near future they had sold out for Jesus right but now it seemed as though Jesus was about to leave them high and dry no Jesus says I'm I'm not going to leave you high and dry I'm coming back to you in just a short time from now in a little while Jesus says in the new King James version you'll see me Again, I'm not going to show myself to the world. They won't see me. But you will get a chance to see me again soon, in a little while, bodily. So how long was this a little while longer there at the beginning of verse 19? How long of a period is Jesus talking about here? Three days. Jesus is talking primarily about his resurrection from the dead. Jesus will live. Jesus will rise from the dead. But Jesus doesn't speak of his resurrection only. Look at those last four words in verse 19. You will live also. The resurrection of Jesus means the resurrection of his people. Because Jesus lives, you will live. And those four words at the end of verse 19 point to two realities. So there's there's several levels of resurrection here that we need to consider. First, they point ahead to the bodily resurrection of the righteous at the last day when Jesus returns to earth. When, When Jesus comes the second time, He's going to give you and me a new, a brand new body that will be free from sin and death, from pain and sadness. On that day, you'll you'll live in a new way. You'll live in a way that you've never lived before. You'll experience eternal life at its highest level in the age to come. Second, though, the words you will live also, at the end of verse 19 there, 
they refer to the eternal life that you experience now in Christ, in this age, as a believer in Jesus. If you look at the rest of the passage, we've already read it and we're going to look at it again, it goes on to speak of our knowledge of Jesus and our our relationship with Him and the Father in this life, the resurrection life that we experience now. To be sure, you'll be raised from the dead physically in the future, but you've already entered into the experience of resurrection life now. There's an already not yet aspect to our being made alive in Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the the power supply, the power source of your resurrection life even now. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again unto a living hope. How? By what power has God caused us to be born again? The rest of the verse said, the rest of the sentence says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this first promise in verses 18 and 19, Jesus puts death in its place for us. The one whose very nature is life is is the one who alone can put death in its proper perspective. Death, death is real. Jesus really died. Believers really do die. And yet we never die. The coming of Jesus into the world as a man, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and the second coming of Jesus at the end, these are all part of of the great Christian affirmation that Jesus lives. Jesus is alive. Jesus has been resurrected. And because Jesus lives, you live. You will live and you live now. You live now and you will live in the new heaven and new earth. I'm reminded of that promise a few chapters back in John 11, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says that even though a believer dies, in a sense, in in an ultimate sense, we can say even, the primary sense, he never dies. Remember where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asks, do you believe this? Do you? For believers, death is not the end. And believers don't have to wait until the next life for this promise of eternal life to be in effect, to kick in, to be true, to apply. If you are trusting now in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross... You have already entered into eternal life now. Because Jesus lives, you can have life. What's more, you can have life to the full. You can enjoy abundant life in this life if you're willing to love God and keep his commandments. 
And we'll get to that point in just a minute. The resurrection promise in verses 18 and 19 gives birth to the second promise in verse 20, which is this. Jesus will give believers a sure knowledge of who he is. Jesus will give believers a sure knowledge of who he is. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead and because we have been given new life in him, We know him for who he is. We believe that he is the son of God. That's what Jesus means when he says in verse 20, at that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Because of the resurrection, you'll know. The content of the believer's knowledge, his Sure knowledge is that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. Christ is fully divine. He is in the Father. He is one with the Father. And everything else flows from this truth about who Jesus is. And the reason we can have this knowledge, the reason we can know with, with sure knowledge that Jesus is God's eternal Son and that's in, in John, by the way, for, for the Son to be in the Father and one with the Father means that he is eternal with the Father. And the reason we can know this with certainty is that Jesus is alive and so are we. Jesus was raised from the dead physically and we have been raised from the dead spiritually by God. Therefore, we know with sure knowledge, who Jesus is. At the beginning of Romans, Paul refers to the resurrection of Christ as the greatest of all Christian evidences. Paul says in Romans 1, 3, and 4, he was descended from David according to the flesh, that's the human side, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? The rest of the sentence says, by his resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus lives, we know that he is the eternal son of God. And because we have been born again, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we can know that he is the eternal son of God. We can know his identity. Both of these things must be true for us to attain to this this knowledge of who Jesus is. Jesus must be alive physically and we must be alive spiritually. The miracle of the resurrection of Jesus is not sufficient to bring a person to a sure knowledge of Christ apart from a corresponding new birth in the heart of that person. When God plants his own life inside of someone, then and only then is that person able to understand and know the truth and respond to Christ in faith, to know Christ, to embrace him joyfully as the only source of eternal life. If you have come to know that Jesus is in the Father, 
that he is one with the Father. If you've come to know that Jesus is God's eternal Son who was raised from the dead for your justification, for your salvation, it's because God has made you alive by the same power and the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And because you know and believe who Jesus is, he will continue to make himself known to you. The third promise in verse 21 is that Jesus will continue to reveal himself to believers. Look at what Jesus says there in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him. And here's the important part for for our purposes this morning. And I will manifest myself to him. I will show myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. Christ promises to continue revealing himself to those who have believed on him. So this goes beyond the second promise. It goes beyond the sure knowledge of who he is. Here, Jesus is talking about a growing depth of knowledge by way of God's self-revelation, Christ's self-revelation. So do you see how these promises are building on one another? The bedrock promise in verses 18 and 19 is the historical fact of Christ's resurrection, which is foundational to our possession of resurrection life, now and forever. Because Jesus lives, you live. And your life in Christ Jesus consists of a sure knowledge of who he is. You have access to a certainty in Christ. That was the second promise, but it doesn't stop there. It can't. Having come to know who Christ is, the true believer will want to know him more fully, more intimately. This this desire, Jesus always creates. Jesus creates this desire in the believer and then, having created it, he satisfies this desire by continuing to show himself to the believer. So Jesus creates this desire in the believer to know him more fully, more intimately. And then, having created the desire, he satisfies this desire by continuing to reveal himself to the believer. In that third promise, our knowledge is not so much a knowledge about Jesus. Rather, it's a deep, intimate knowledge of Jesus in which the believer comes to know him as a living person. A close friend. Well, how does, how does Jesus do this? How does the Lord promise to reveal himself to believers? We've seen the what, but we need to consider the how. How does this work? What's his method of manifesting himself to you? Well, First, let's consider very briefly how he doesn't make himself known to us. He doesn't manifest himself to you bodily. The entire point of this discourse in John 14 was to prepare his followers, including us, but especially the 11, 
for his physical absence. He's physically not here. Nor does Christ manifest himself to you through visions and dreams, at least not primarily. This is never how God routinely and chiefly communicates to Christians throughout their lives. How then does God manifest himself to believers? How is it that he continues to reveal himself to us? Believers come to see more and more of Christ through the testimony of Scripture and through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Those are two testimonies. The testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, each one of us. The revelation of Scripture bears true witness to Jesus Christ. And in the heart of every believer, the Holy Spirit bears true witness to the Christ who is revealed in Scripture. So these two testimonies complement one another. They work together in the heart of his people, of God's people. Now, all of this, of course, sounds like make-believe fairy tale or, or wishful thinking perhaps, to the person who does not know God, to the person who has not been born again by the power of Christ's resurrection from the dead. However, to those of us who have been made alive by God's Spirit, the presence and power of Christ in us, in our lives, is the most real thing there is, at least when we are in our right minds. There have been times when the realness and closeness of Jesus seems more real than anything I've ever seen or touched. Now, at this point, many of you are thinking, well, I'm a Christian, but Jesus isn't that real to me. What you just said, that's pretty extreme. And I agree that I feel the same way sometimes, maybe even many times. So don't let me give you the impression that my Christian experience or the normal Christian experience, anyone's Christian experience, is an endless series of spiritual highs in which the presence of Christ is increasingly powerful and palpable. And yet, for every believer... For every Christian, for every person in Christ, there should be this trajectory of Christian experience that is ever going up and to the right. If you're a believer, Jesus will continue to manifest himself to you, primarily in his word and through his spirit, as I said before, but also through your fellowship with the saints, and also through your interface with the world that God has made and put you in. And as he shows himself to you more and more through the means of grace, through your communion with him, through your times of prayer and meditation on scripture, 
through your times of corporate worship with the people of God, you will continue to see him and know him in deeper and more personal ways. Now, that trajectory is not without its bumps and its dips. But it's there for the one to whom God, to whom the Lord Jesus Christ has made himself known. Sometimes, in fact, God will accomplish this good purpose in you by putting you through dry seasons of spiritual lows, or at least that seem that way. And and during these times, you'll be tempted to think that God is afar off, that maybe he has abandoned you to spiritual depression. The disciples certainly felt this. The, The 11 in the upper room were already beginning to experience the emotions and they were only going to intensify. And, and they were experiencing them already, even though Jesus was still with them bodily, interestingly. But sometimes Jesus isn't real to us because we aren't meeting the conditions upon which that third promise is given. In the same verse in which Jesus promises to continue revealing himself to believers... He also gives the conditions upon which that continuing revelation will be given. The two conditions there in verse 21 are loving Jesus and keeping his commandments. Now we, we considered this extensively a couple weeks ago. We'll just consider it briefly this week. But verse 21 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you see those two conditions? Are you meeting those conditions? Do you love Jesus and keep his word? If not, it may explain why he is not real to you. And we can't cop out here. It's possible to meet these two conditions. They're not too difficult for you. They're not beyond your reach, as Deuteronomy puts it. John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. By God's grace, you can love Jesus and obey his commandments. You have no excuse not to. Now, you clearly, you can't do it perfectly. Clearly, you are a liar if you say you do it perfectly and say that you're without sin. But genuine faithfulness, biblically defined, is not perfection. Okay, There, there is a sense in which the ultimate faithfulness that only Jesus Christ performed is that perfect faithfulness. But to those who have been redeemed, to those who, for those who have had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, reckoned to them, there is a faithfulness that we can live out as the redeemed. So we can be faithful. We can obey imperfectly Christ and his commandments. We can truly love him. Many churchgoers seem to suppose that it's possible to enjoy the fullness of Christian life without fervent, heartfelt love for Christ. And then it's possible to
to love him without obeying him. But verse 21 single-handedly refutes such a notion. And verse 24 states the same thing a different way. It says, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So the Father and the Son, they agree on this. If you keep the words of Christ, you love him. If you don't keep his words, you don't love him. That's the inescapable logic here. Again, it's true that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ. We're not saved, we're not justified by, our, by the fervency of our love for Christ or by the faithfulness of our obedience to Christ because both of them are imperfect and not unable to save us. At the same time, saving grace and saving faith always, always, always produce love for Christ and obedience to Christ. There are no exceptions to that rule. James 2.17 says, Faith without works is dead, and dead faith never saved anyone. Arthur Pink put it this way, This manifestation of Christ, to the believer at the end of verse 21, is made only to the one who really loves him. And the proof of love to him is not by emotional displays, but by submission to his will. There is a vast difference between sentiment and practical reality. The Lord will give no direct or special revelation of himself to those who are in the path of disobedience. He that hath my commandments means hath them at heart and keepeth them. That is the real test. We hear, but do we heed? We know, but are we doing his will, end quote. There are professing Christians who are willing to do great and spectacular things for the Lord, but who are far less willing to commit themselves to simple, commonplace, everyday obedience. Are you willing to obey the commandments of God day in, and day out in the mundane life that God has given you? Or does it need to be spectacular? If you're willing to obey Christ, if you are loving Jesus, you're guaranteed to grow in grace and knowledge. Christ will continue to unveil himself to you. You will come to know him. You will come to know him and not just know about him. When a believer loves Jesus by keeping his commandments, he can expect, fully expect, Jesus to reveal himself to him increasingly and powerfully. Your spiritual eyes, or as Paul puts it, the eyes of your heart in Ephesians 1, will see Christ more clearly the more you are obeying Christ. If, on the other hand, you fail to obey, you fail to walk with Christ in obedience, he will cease to reveal himself to you, and your love for him will wane. 
The fourth and final promise at the end of verse 23 is that Jesus and the Father will make their home in and with believers. Jesus says, we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Is there anything more astounding than what I just read right there? Anything more wonderful than that reality? Think about it. Just ponder it for a moment. The eternal God makes his dwelling place with you, with each of you. His eternal home is your eternal home. Your eternal home is his eternal home. How can I explain this in a way that makes it come alive in our hearts as it should? From verse 17 down to verse 23, Jesus manages to tell us that all three persons of the Trinity, all three persons of the eternal Godhead dwell in us and with us. So if your Bibles are still open to John 14, look with me up at verse 17. There Jesus says that the Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. So with and in. So there's the third person of the, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now look down at verse 20. Jesus says, I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. There's a second person of the Trinity living in us. And now in verse 23, in our passage, in our verse that we're considering right now, Jesus says that he and the Father both make their home with us. And we already knew that the Father was in us from verse 20 because Jesus is in us and the Father is in him. But here we see that the Father and the Son are also with us. So all three persons are in us and with us, and we are in them and with them. We, we, we must not relegate what Jesus is saying here to mere metaphor or something like that, or just you know, a way of speaking. What he is saying is real. It's actually true. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three make their home in and with you. They have swept you up into their eternal community. You will be in them and with them forever. They will be in you and with you forever. It's never going to end. It's never going to stop being the case. Again, I ask, is there anything more wonderful than this truth? When we think about this, it should, it should almost seem too good to be true. What the God of the universe has done for us and is doing for us and in us. This promise, this reality, this truth should drive us to personal holiness. Paul says in 1 
Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? So each of your bodies is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know this, that he who is in you, whom you have received from God, is living in you, in your body? And then Paul goes on to say, you are not your own. So the the implication of being a temple of the Holy Spirit is that you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies, those same bodies that are indwelt by God. Fellow believer, Jesus bought you at a high price. It cost him very much to purchase you. He had to send his only begotten son to become a man and to die for you on a Roman cross. His son, the eternal son, Jesus Christ, was damned for you on a tree. And God did this for you. He did this for you so that he could live in you and with you forever. He saved you so that he could be with you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life with God and in God. You were bought at a high price. And the God who paid for you lives in you and with you. All three persons of the Trinity dwell in you. They have made their home, their eternal home, with you. Their eternal home is your eternal home. You've been given the greatest gift that could ever be given. It's been given to you by God himself. And this gift is God himself. You've been given God. God has given you God. He has given you himself. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Love him and keep his words. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. And we ask that your grace would continue to work in us, your people, to bring us to completion in Christ Jesus. That you would work in us an increasing desire to keep your word, to walk in the spirit you've given to us. We thank you for the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which saves us and empowers us to walk as those who have been saved. We ask that this week, yet again, you would walk with us and give us, fill us with the Spirit and with his resurrection power. And we ask this fervently in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.